0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome back for our Patreon and Series. Thank you for joining us once again. And uh, I apologize, as you can see, uh, we had to change our location from our studio, which is now back to being our choir loft. And um, now I had to move the studio up here in my office. So hopefully the connection will be fine. And we won't have any technical issue during this conference. I would like to renew my invitation to all young adults, uh, 18 to 35 years old, to join us for this annual retreat. This year we'll have uh, our retreat at the St. Therese National Shrine uh, here in Darien, uh, neighborhood of Chicago. I was just, uh, I just got a confirmation today that it seems to be more likely that we will be able to maintain this retreat in Darien, again, uh, beginning of August. So, you can find all the information on our website, the Institute website, the main page. On the right column of the page, you will see a little uh, ad for this retreat. Click on it, and you will find more information and uh, sign up uh, online sign up page. So, tonight, I would like to talk about St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the major patron saints of the Institute of Christ the King, obviously for the studies that we follow uh, in the Institute of Christ the King and that were always recommended for many centuries in the church for the formation of seminarians, the Thomistic theology. So the origin of our great saint. He was from southern Italy, a famous, very famous family, Uh, The Aquino family, probably, uh, well, not probably, but certainly aristocratic family from uh, the southern part of Italy. He was born in 1225. His mother apparently was from Normandy, uh, and she was blonde. And uh, that's certainly why, obviously, why St. Thomas also was blonde and tall. We oftentimes represent St. Thomas Aquinas kind of fat, but this is more... legion uh, than uh, the truth. He was certainly, uh, as many biographers wrote about him, he was certainly a a very tall man, uh, as uh, people from Normandy usually are, um, tall and blonde. Um, You know that we say that the table where St. Thomas would eat uh, had like a big cut in it to be able to fit our dear saint while eating. Again, this is probably a legion more than the truth. Um, um, We also uh, say that at the table with the king, same thing, he had this special uh, table for him, but we don't even know if it's actually accurate that he ever met the king, uh, King Louis of France, uh, personally. As we know, the Order of Dominican... Was founded in 1215, so a couple years before St. Thomas was born. So, a very new uh, order of preacher. He enters this community in 1240, but at first, before that, he is placed by his dad for his education at Monte Cassino, which is a Benedictine monastery. And that's certainly there since he started his formation is education as a five years old little boy. So it's certainly there that he truly uh, had this first appetite for contemplation, for spiritual life among these Benedictine monks. Uh, so he spent most of his education there with the Benedictine monks, this beautiful big monastery in Italy. After this time of preparation and education, since as you know, there was no uh Pre-K schools. There is no, there was no uh, school for younger kids at that time. So monks would take care of the formation of uh, young boys like him because monks were the one who had all these libraries. These uh, the books where uh, the knowledge could be found, and not elsewhere except the university. But that was uh, later in life. So after this time with the Benedictine monks, Saint Thomas is sent to Napoli, the university there. He would actually be staying with another community of Benedictines there in Napoli, a little house, but he would follow the studies uh, at this bigger university of Napoli. He studied there, of course, Aristotle, the Greek uh, philosopher. And that's there in Napoli that he will meet for the first time the Dominicans, this new order and will join them secretly despite the consent of his parents. But remember, he was not a little boy anymore. He was at the university and decides to join them. He receives the habit and unfortunately his mother finds about it. Her reaction is pretty um, strict. She sends people from her family to literally kidnap, as we know, kidnap the great Saint Thomas to bring him back home and to uh, put him in this kind of jail prison for a little while a couple of months a lower parenthesis here regarding the university that um, where St Thomas was studying of course at that time university were much smaller than what they are today they were divided in two main steps two main levels um, like a time of formation the first time was uh, the equivalent of uh, high schools that we have today So they would learn, during this high school, uh, liberal arts with certainly an emphasis on philosophy since at that time, the most commentators, uh, the the most important commentators were the commentators on the philosophy of Aristotle. That's why from the very start, St. Thomas is really, totally emerged into the philosophy of Aristotle. Remember that at that time in Europe, we are at the time of this great university, we're at the time of the building of beautiful cathedrals, 13th century in France especially. This is the beginning of modern Western civilization. Very important time for Europe. It's explosion, literally the explosion of arts, liberal arts, philosophy, and all the other things that we will talk about but also architecture, with the, the cathedrals once again, the beautiful monasteries. Um, it's flourishing everywhere in Europe. So you can imagine that naturally, all these people had a real thirst for um, these intellectual formation. So that's the first level. Once again, when you join the university, the first level was kind of high school level, focused on liberal arts. The second level now is more the equivalent of college, or what we will call faculty um, in, in Europe. Faculty, and that's where you're specialized uh, for what you want to do later in life. Theology, medicine, law, and so on. So really two main steps. That's just to give you a little uh, insight of uh, how universities were divided at that time. So for St. Thomas, going back to his studies, and especially studies on Aristotle... He wants to restore nature and reality. This is really the sign for the divine. That's the very start of his philosophy and theology, once again, following Aristotle. So we start with very practical, very palpable things, reality that surrounds us, uh, our senses, what my senses tell me when I touch, when I see, when I smell. That's the most um, accurate knowledge that I can have this uh, knowledge given through the senses, through nature itself, what I can observe, what I can see in nature. And we can see here again the extremely important influence of the great Aristotle, who starts his philosophy also on the uh, observation of nature. St. Thomas is a master in arts: the arts of language, rhetoric, logic, dialectic. Just to give you a little definition for each, rhetoric is the arts of persuasive or effective speaking. Logic is the arts or the field of inquiry which investigate how to reason properly, correctly. And dialectic is the art of investigating or discussing the truth, trying to uh, question, to see, to find the truth. And once again, finding the truth, and this is essential to understand St. Thomas, finding the truth first, starting with what our senses tell us, what's the most um, down to earth, really that I cannot ignore, that I cannot reject. It's so obvious to me. You know, I remember uh, in in high school, um, one of our dear um, students who was always trying to uh, have these arguments with the teacher saying well you know how can i be sure that my senses you don't don't lie it's the famous doubt of Descartes, the french philosopher during the french uh, the time of the french revolution uh, that my senses actually lie to me you know if i stick a, a, a stick in a, a glass of water you will see the stick has different angle he's not straight so what i see it's lying to me Um uh, and so the student was always saying, you know, if I want to really um, be able to go through that wall, I'm sure I could. You know, it's just my, my senses. Of course, there is kind of something a little bit crazy behind these ideas, which we find, unfortunately, in these more modern today philosophies. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But once again, St. Thomas is the realism, is the essential, the basics of um, the teaching of St. Thomas, once again, based on Aristotle himself. If in his studies, St. Thomas Aquinas was such a genius, it is, of course, certainly first to the help of God's grace, but also because of his profound humility. And three types of humility, I think we can point out in uh, the figure of St. Thomas. First, humility towards others in the sense that he wants to know others. He wants to understand others. He wants to understand why human nature is acting in this way or the other way. So that's uh, how he will then be able to develop, uh, deepen his moral science. The moral part is very important in the Summa, as we will see later. Uh, Moral science through first is great humility towards others. I have to understand, to, to make myself so small so as to penetrate everything and understand everything. And uh, the second aspect of that humility is humility towards God, certainly, which, of course, could be the first one. But uh, here I purposely take as a second uh, form of humility towards God, um, because um, this is his theology. This is how he will penetrate the mystery of theology, and we will see how moral and uh, theology are um, connected, of course, together. And finally... Humility towards the essence of being, what he truly is. If I empty myself up, then I can try to regain everything that I am and try to understand everything that I am. This is how he will base his uh, philosophy, develop his philosophy. So, first his moral science, then his theology, humility towards God, and humility towards himself, the, the very being, his very nature, essence. Um, that will be his philosophy, because once again, humility because he wants to penetrate as deep as possible all these science to understand them all, and so so as to be able to do that, he has to get rid of anything that is too much of, of himself, so as to receive the truth in everything attitude of humility once again, which is an essential um, an essential Motive, an essential, not motive, sorry, an essential um, element for uh, finding the truth. And we see that in in great scientists, in great philosophers, you know, they are extremely uh, brilliant people, but they lack of this humility. And you can show them the truth. They can sometimes even understand the truth but because there is no true humility, because they did not empty themselves up to receive this truth that is too big for them to really uh, uh, be able to comprehend the truth, they have to make this act of humility in order to realize, okay, well, my my brain, my intelligence tells me all that, but now I have to embrace the truth. And this truth has all these consequences, and of course moral consequences, that unfortunately many refuse to accept. So humility, truth, and... Um, Holiness, of course, deeply interconnected. So he acknowledges his emptiness and lets himself be taught by others, by nature, as we saw, and ultimately by God himself. Not ultimately, but also primarily by God himself. So this extraordinary audacity to get to the very bottom of things of what I can reach, this extraordinary audacity uh, was the proper of the life of St. Thomas Aquinas. And this humility, I remember this quote from Socrates. Socrates, remember, he said, I know that I know nothing. This is the fundamental of the philosophy of Socrates. Uh, as a parenthesis, just to distract you, when I was in high school, luckily I was uh, in an institute high school, one of the five institute schools that we have in, in France, in Europe. And uh, one day we had a test, a uh, big test. Um, and the question, I can't remember the topic, but probably a difficult one uh, for our philosophy classes. And I was kind of the troublemaker for the whole class at that time, as some might be extremely surprised to hear that. But um, And I told everybody before the test, I said, okay, well, we have... We have to do that, but it will work only if everybody agrees. So we'll simply write, we'll pretend to write, you know, all our uh, thing like draft, you know, during the the test. Because you have to stay, it's normally a four hours test on Saturday morning. And you have to stay at least two hours because the principal is not, um, you know, he understands, he knows his dear students. And so for them not to leave after 10 minutes to go to whatever he requires us to stay at least two hours normally. So I told everyone, well, write down you know, uh, uh, everything that you think of or whatever, just to pretend that you're doing something pretty much, which was not very good on my end, I confess. And I told them, well, at the end, together, we'll just write on the first page of the exam, I know that I know nothing, Socrates, and that's it. And uh, unfortunately, uh, everybody did it. But unfortunately, the teacher was not very happy with that. but I already had a quite a pass with this teacher, so I was granted the grace to be um, to study philosophy by myself till the end of the year. So when my uh, classmates were in class with the teacher, I was in the study hall by myself, trying to study with my sister's notes. so, Please do not follow this example. But again, Socrates, I know that I know nothing. And that reminds me, of course, of the attitude of St. Thomas himself. I have to empty myself up first to be able to receive this truth. And even by receiving it, as we will see at the end of his life, he said, you know, that that was nothing. He was ready to burn everything because he realized the truth is so big, so incredible. It's God himself that I cannot possess here on earth. And so, this attitude of humility, really, you have to empty yourself up in order to be able to receive. And the more you hum- humble yourself, the more, of course, God will be able to pour into your soul, your intelligence, your reason, uh, truth, with a capital T. Going back to these studies at the university, uh, we can ask, what is a teacher at that time? What is a master at, uh, in universities at that time? There are two main things that were taught at the university at that time. Um, Two things. First, the commentaries or sententia, sentences, by Peter Lombard, who wrote uh, from 1150 to 1160. Uh, It's kind of a handbook of theology. So that's pretty much the one material that teacher had uh, at that time. So the Sentencia yeah, Peter Lombard, and of course, obviously, the second uh, big uh, material is Holy Scriptures, the Bible. The teachers teach usually one or two books of the Bible a year, so there is a cycle. Um, you know, sometimes it's they spend a whole year on one book. As you know, we can spend uh, long, long. Uh, months on just one uh, chapter of the Bible so they will re- they would really look into all the details of the text to penetrate the text as much as possible and to do this teaching on holy uh, scriptures or the sententia from Peter Lombard there was two ways of teaching the first way is a cursive what we call a cursive way remember cursive like the way of writing so it's simply to take a series and read the text and reflect on punctual difficulties. So you just go, you read, and oh, here there is a difficulty, Difficulty. well, just stop and try to analyze that, and then we keep going. So really cursive or linear linear um, way of uh, um, penetrating the, the text, understanding the text. The second way is a more magisterial way, called the magisterial way. So you take one book or part of it, and you explain it. So. You look, um, um, you take really just one one part of the book, and you explain everything, all the connections. It's I know it's a little bit difficult to understand if I don't have like time to uh, go through a paragraph and explain the, the difference between the two ways of teaching. But um, once again, one can be in kind of you know the interconnections between the sentences, the words, the translations, the times in history, the different interpretations uh, connecting you know the ideas together so a little bit more complicated way more magisterial once again because you need more knowledge to be able to uh, put together all these ideas or a, a cursive way is a more simple way of explaining by simply going you know like you would go with a little one because remember most of these students were very young at the time 15 16 17 18 um, and so you go, you know, you read with them and you stop, oh, okay, here, what can we say about this? What is St. Paul trying to tell us here? What is the meaning of this word here? And you just keep going like that. So these are the two main ways of uh, penetrating, explaining a text at that time. And that's also what we find if you have the readings of St. Thomas Aquinas in mind, you can already see a little bit uh, this mindset, this uh, way of analyzing in his writings either in the Summa uh, or in like more magisterial way, or in the commentaries on the Gospel of St. John or St. Matthew. Uh, this is a more linear or cursive way. He just goes and makes distinctions, of course, but uh, verse after, after verse. In these classes, they would first give a general introduction to the book, to the part of the book and how to read the text, what we call the keys of interpretation that St. Thomas will remind us, and I give them to you now, these different keys of interpretation for the biblical studies. These are certainly reminders, but it's always good to remind things. The four senses of Scripture, the literal sense, the literal sense is simply what the words mean, what the sacred authors intend to convey. We discover the meaning of scriptural words by following the rules of sound interpretation. Often this includes taking into account the author's culture, figures of speech, and literary forms. In the literal realities and events of scripture, we can often see additional spiritual signs or meanings. But we must remember all other senses of scripture are based on the literal sense. This is kind of the, the, the grounds on which we can then build up. The allegorical sense. Many of the events in scripture find their ultimate significance in Christ. This is typology. Tipos, like a figure. Uh, figure in the sense of uh, uh, a person. Things in the Old Testament signify, signifying Christ and his church. Remember uh, the talks of Canon Huberfeld right now that I recommend. You can find them on our YouTube channel. The beginning with Moses, you know, going through uh, the different uh, books of the Old Testament. So how can we see the tipos in Greek, the the figure, the the person of Christ in the Old Testament? Uh, That's what is um, um, explained here in the allegorical sense. The moral sense, kind of obvious, the moral sense, the events reported in Scripture ought to inspire us to lead moral lives. As St. Paul says, They were written down for our instruction. Jesus cured blind Bartimaeus after he repeatedly cried out, Jesus, son of David, David, have mercy on me. This real miracle is also an exhortation for us to persist in our petitions. And finally, the anagogical sense. The events and realities of scripture can also point to our final end. Heaven, The church on earth is a sign of the heavenly Jerusalem. Ana, in Greek, uh, I think it's, I might be saying a mistake, but going up, the movement up, where kata is cataclysm, um, is more the movement down. So going up, going to our final end, anagogical sense. Uh, There is a medieval couplet, that summarizes these four senses. The letter speaks of deeds, allegory to faith, the moral, how to act, anagogy or destiny. So this is a little reminder that you have to try to keep in mind when reading Holy Scriptures because sometimes it can get a little bit difficult, you know, the interpretation. If you don't have the, the lights of the fathers of the church, the popes and so on, Great commentators on the, the scriptures. At least if you have these four senses, you know, what is meant by this parable? What, how can I apply this to my own life? How can I see Christ, the figure of Christ in this passage? How can I uh, apply that in a moral sense for my life? Or how can I apply that in regard to my final destiny? What is Christ telling us to, to show us the way to heaven in this parable or, or Psalm and so on? so after this general introduction given by the teacher and again if I'm talking about all this now it's because uh, of course St. Thomas was also a great doctor and a teacher so he used that in his commentaries when he was writing he followed that so understanding how a teacher would work at that time will help us understand uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and to read him uh, better certainly so, after this general introduction, they would give the division of the text. part, subdivision, sub subdivision, sub 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 subdivisions, and so on. Especially if you read uh, all the Summa, obviously, and um, again the commentary on St. John, that's very clear. I mean, sometimes you have one distinction point uh, one, then you have one A, then you have one A. Uh, two one a three and so on so a lot of distinction sometimes it's hard to keep track so when you want to penetrate a little bit deeper the, the text uh, you need certainly to write down you know and try to write this scheme that St Thomas is following And why having so many divisions so many parts when doing this uh, work and when reading St Thomas Aquinas once again it's to be very, find very accurate, very precise analysis. He wants to penetrate everything. He wants to understand it's God's word when you talk about Holy Scriptures. If I want to find God, if I want to know God, well, I have to look where He revealed Himself, and that's in Holy Scriptures, and of course, tradition of the Church as well, Revelation, but the Holy Scriptures. So I have to dig inside to find what God is trying to tell me in this passage, to reach the very heart, the very Source the very intention of the author as well. Take the example of when you're peeling an onion, okay, you remove the different, uh, um, uh, sorry, I'm losing my words, envelopes, the different envelopes, you have to remove one, then you get to the other one, to get really to the very heart of uh, that knowledge of God. He wants to find God, that's, the beginning of his studies. He wants to find God and he wants to share this knowledge that he has of God with others. Once again, first in the Bible, with all this distinction in his commentaries, and then in nature itself as well. And I want to give here a little reminder about the five ways um, that St. Thomas Aquinas uses to prove the existence of God. Once again, in nature so this is meant not for, you know, a Catholic who would be doubting or willing to understand God better. No, he starts from scratch, from nothing. What can I look around, when I look around me, what, I can, what can I see? Uh, how can I see the presence of God? You know, beautiful explanation that I encourage you to try to penetrate, to understand, and to then be able to uh, teach to others, to explain to others. So five ways, the movement in nature, I am not going to explain them all, I, um, that could be another c- conference, but uh, and it would necessitate probably at least five different conferences for that. So the movement in nature, I witness some movements, you know, in a, there, there is always a first impulse. Uh, and so if I go back in this order of movements, I have to admit that there is, yes, this one first impulse that uh, give these movements to everything in nature. And of course, Call it whatever. I will come. Call him God. This first impulse, this first movement, which is not caused by any other movement, causes in nature. Same thing, same reasoning. Causes we witness uh, effects, which means there is a cause before that, and I can go back in the order of causes, and ultimately I will have to admit that there is one uh, cause, not caused by anything, uh, supreme. Uh, cause, God himself. Then we have the contingency in nature. We see in nature that there are some things that are contingent and some that are essential. Um, And uh, same thing, if we go back in the order of contingencies, uh, we we find God as the um, the first um, essential being. Then we see certain perfections in nature not everything is perfect you know sometimes uh yeah nature shows that there are a standard of perfection there we tend to that perfection in some ways and we see different level different degrees of perfection and so same reasoning if we go back in this order of of uh, perfections we have to admit that there is one perfect standard if i might say one perfect being that encompasses all these perfections around me And that I will call him God. And finally, a certain order in nature. Order, which means things are ordinated to a certain end, a certain finality. And same thing in the reasoning of St. Thomas. We have to admit that there is a God, a God, uh, uh, our finality. We all tend, all creation tends to go back to its creator. Final cause of everything. So once again, he wants to find God. That's his first um, desire. He wants to find God, and there is no question about it. It is too obvious, according to nature and scriptures, that sin entered into the world, and the Word became man. And therefore, he wants to find this man and God. Once again, he always start his reasoning thinking by uh, first looking at reality, what surrounds us. Going back to the way they would analyze the Bible at that time, St. Thomas, but also all the other teachers he had. We said that first we have... That first part, that is the division of the text. The second part we explain the text itself, and the third part are the question, the questions asked by the students or even by the teacher himself. That's extremely important. Also, we see that clearly in the Summa Theologia by Saint Thomas. Uh, he explains, he gives the distinctions, and he let the students, you know, ask whatever questions they have. Mm. Yes, yeah, sorry. I yeah. didn't explain very well this, this talking about the question. So one day, one a famous controversy. Yeah. One of the students asked him, would the word, the Word of God, you know, have incarnated. If sin had not entered the world, and Saint Thomas said, "Well, the the answer is simple. There is no question about it. Simply because we have so many proofs that the, the Word incarn uh, became man, that um, there is no no way of uh, questioning that. It's too obvious. So just ignore the question." Um, so a very once again a very realistic uh, philosophy and theology with Saint Thomas. We can do, you know, a lot of speculations um, about the existence of God or the, 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 uh, sometimes some of the questions we hear today are, you know, totally interesting questions, but that don't, do not have any serious grounds. Because once again, the answer has been given already and clearly um, in, in many, many ways. So here he talks about the, the incarnation of the, the word of God. Now, what was the genius of St. Thomas? Once again, with St. Thomas, and we see in our dear Pope Benedict, uh, this influence when he started to explain reason and faith, if you remember uh, the connection, interconnection between the two. So there is a perfect complementarity between faith and reason with St. Thomas. As I said, he starts with nature, with what we see around us, and builds up to find God. So a perfect uh, harmony between faith and reason. There is no contradiction. Sometimes uh, faith will enlighten reason. And sometimes my reason will help me to understand better my faith. And back and forth like that. Beautiful equilibrium between God's presence in us, faith, and creation itself. There is no separation but a true marriage. A true marriage. The lights of reason Nature that continues and slowly disappears, disappears to give place to give place to the light of revelation, faith in the soul. This is, I think, the genius of St. Thomas. Thanks once again to the writings and studies of the great Aristotle at that time. Beautiful marriage between the, the Greek philosophy, Aristotle, and this marriage with uh, revelation, without any contradiction, as I said. You can take the image of the honey that is made through um, in gather- gathering from many different flowers. Think of these little bees. Saint Thomas, uh, Saint Francis de Sales give the image also for prayer life, meditation. By the way, if you want to meditate, you know, uh, don't hesitate to go from one thought to another, and you gather like that. You know, during your meditation, you gather all these good thoughts and to put them together to give back to our Lord this sweet honey. Well, same thing with St. Thomas Aquinas here. He wants us to go from one flower to another. He will take from this philosopher. He will take from this uh, church father. He will take from this text of the Bible. He will take from uh, what he experienced, what he sees, what his senses tell him and put them all together so as to find this precious honey, honey uh, truth. He has this thirst for truth. He questions the text to find the answer, and that's typical of the question, scholastica at that time. The scholastical questioning: uh, we we question the text. We want to have the answer. Again, this is uh, this is easy to understand when we understand the explosion, as I mentioned, the explosion of arts of uh, you know men wants to understand at that time. We think too often of midi- um, middle age as this obscure. Uh, horrible, cruel times, but this is totally misunderstanding. I mean, these people were, uh, many were genius and they built our, literally, they built up our civiliz- civilization, our Christian civilization. Just think of cathedral once again, the architecture. And that's certainly what he will become doctor in Pagina Sacra, sacred pages. Because, once again, he questions the text he wants to find to get to that very root, the essence of the text, God himself. Pagina Doctor in Pagina Sagra. Towards the end of his life, just to give you a little heads up, towards the end of his life, he wrote up to 12 pages a day. So I have only three here, and it's pretty badly written. Um, Imagine, 12 pages, that I did that time... It, it would you know, take a while to actually write down on these big, beautiful pages. So 12 pages a day, that's towards the end of his life. So when he was already very tired, exhausted with all his work. And he could de- dictate up to two to three different people at the same time. Like Caesar, if you remember. Or people that would play chess in different uh, chess boards at the same time. Well, St. Thomas would do the same with uh, Holy Scriptures. Being able to penetrate the sense of Scriptures in three different ways, to, um, you know, he could be dictating about, I don't know, a moral question that one of the students would be asking. Uh, he could be talking at the same time about the Epistle of St. Saint, Saint Paul, or he could be uh, writing, uh, I don't know, what, the beautiful Feast of Corpus Christi. Um, so, really a, a brilliant mind. And that's certainly why he died very... Uh, early in life you know if he would have lived maybe a couple more years he would have certainly finished the summa as you know the depth and beauty of his writing can be found in his desire to simply know God that's the the, the, the um, really the, the beginning of his thinking of his reasoning His motto, Quis est Deus? What is God? Where can I find God? Who is God? That's the the premise of his um, uh, study, his work. He wants to know God. That reminds me of the three basic verbs that I hope all of you know and will teach to your children and the children of your children, to know, to love, and to serve God. That's the basic. To know God first. And St. Thomas is clear. First I have to know God. How can I love my mom if I don't know first my mom? How can I love chocolate if I first don't know what chocolate is all about? So same here with St. Thomas and with God. If I want to know to love God and if my love for God is getting weaker and weaker, maybe because of the circumstances in life and so on, lack of faith or whatever, the situation of the world, well, do I try anything to know God better? Where can I find God's presence in my life? And we're not talking about a Protestant knowledge of God, you know, in the boom-boom of the music or whatever. No, really, in, in in reading these beautiful texts, in following the teaching of the Father of the Church, the early fathers, in reading the uh, beautiful encyclicals of many popes before uh, our time, I mean, you have tons of ways given to us by the Church to penetrate, really, the... God, to, to understand God as much as we can understand God. And from that knowledge, then I will grow in my love for him. Because I will, once again, understand who he truly is. My creator, my redeemer, and so on. So I will be able to love him always more. And once I love, of course, I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to do anything for the one I love. So with God, uh, we have the example of martyrs. Uh, clear example. This love was so strong that they were ready to give their lives for um, Their God. So once again, these three verbs to know, to love, and to serve. If you don't remember them, why this motto from St. Thomas once again? Chris est Deus. Who is God? What is God? Interesting enough, at that time, before really the Dominican order of preachers before them at that time it was mostly apostolate of confession and morality so um, people would preach would teach mostly about morality uh... with the coming of the dominican the preachers the fathers dominicans uh, we switched now to not something just moral morality but something more uh, in the, the knowledge of god and faith and um, uh, The love for God, because once again, if we lose and that's certainly what we have we're witnessing today If we lose this first step, you know uh, to know God to know who he is uh, My morality the way I act according to the knowledge I have of God the way I act if I lose this first part if I forget this first part the way I act after a little while, it won't make any sense. And I will start doing any kind of things because I don't have these solid grounds on which I can build my moral life. So St. Thomas with the Dominicans at that time understood that. Oh, maybe there is danger here. We're focusing too much on morality, confession and all that. And maybe we should go back to a, a deeper knowledge of God. And once I know him well, now I understand why I have to act in such a way and avoid this and that. So morality and a deep faith, deep love for God. Extremely important. For him, to act in a morally good sense can be done first if I love God. and we find perfectly here the theology, spirituality of Saint Francis de Sales. You know, the love of God, treatise on the love of God, Doctor of the love of God. This is the basics. If I don't have that first, I can expect you know to be willingly uh, be trying to lead a moral life because something will be missing. I'll I'll be just trying my best, but it will be a bland, uh, empty morality, as uh, we see too often, that leads, after a while, leads to all the debauchery that we we see today. So, uh, deep love for God. And this mindset is clearly expressed in the plan that he follows uh, in his Summa, Summa Theologia. I will give you now the... The plan. So there are three books, we can say. Three big books. The first one is what we have to believe. So he takes the creed and he explains the creed. All the parts of our faith, what we have to believe. In other words, where can I find this knowledge of God? Uh, God in the creed. God in his unity. God trying... The three persons in God, the Trinity, Uh, God the Creator, the Incarnation, the work of redemption through the Incarnation in that same book, what we have to believe, the ultimate finality of man, and the Church. He finishes this book with the existence of the Church. The second book is what we have to do, the moral part. The, uh, the action, the acting of men, the moral theology here. So he talks once again about um, beatitude, heaven, hell, purgatory, he starts with that. He explains how human acts work, you know, morality. He explains, according to these human acts, uh, he explains what a virtue is. Uh, he explained what's the law to be able to keep, you know, morality and the safe boundaries and uh, like a guide for men, natural law with the 10 commandments and finally grace, grace that comes to help men to act uh, properly, to act according to the good. Uh, We need the help of grace. So he finishes with that and then he has a special part at the end of the second book. He has a special part, the special moral uh, where he talks about virtues but more in particular and the third part of the Summa is the help from God. So once again, first book, what we have to believe. Second book, according to what we have to believe, what do we have to do? And the third book, what helps do we have for that? And that we have, of course, the sacraments, the sacraments of the church, sacraments in general, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, unction, marriage, and holy order. And he finishes also with uh, parts on prayer, uh, beautiful. Unfortunately, as we know, he did not have time to finish the Summa, which is very unfortunate. But we certainly have, you know, uh, the essential and uh, uh, extremely important work for um, our faith and moral theology. St. Thomas is certainly one of the greatest poets also of his time and maybe wider than that. Remember the office when he was requested by the Pope to write the office for Corpus Christi. Uh, if you look at the hymns, beautiful, we were talking about the, the different hymns uh, at lunch this afternoon with um, Abba Raymond and our candidate Christopher. Uh, how rich these hymns are when you listen to Vespers, when we sing Vespers, when you listen to Compline, uh, Lodz, in the morning we have a hymn as well. These beautiful hymns in Latin they are difficult to understand it's, uh, because it's a lot of, it's poetry so it's harder, but when you take the translations and try to understand it's it's extremely beautiful and extremely rich because they understood at that time that in one hymn they had to put pretty much as much information as possible for people to understand what we were talking about in a beautiful way, poetic way, but as much information as possible. So everything is like a a summary of everything we need to know for Corpus Christi, the the, pre, the real presence and so on. So I recommend uh, just reading and meditating on these hymns. Great, greatest poet of the Middle Age. His death now, our dear St. Thomas, on December 6th, 1273, 73, apparently he had a vision. Some talk about ecstasy, which... Was not the first time in his life he was so close to God. Uh, Next, he and all of a sudden he stopped writing. He accepted no more questions, as if he had tasted already uh, the the presence of God in a very particular way in his soul. And when he had this first for taste, first foretaste of heaven, for him he couldn't do anything else. He was everything that I have written is nothing. I cannot do anything. This will be. You know, it's it's it's, it's uh, dust. It's nothing compared to uh, God that I have now, that has revealed Himself to me, maybe in this ec- ecstasy in a special way. So he doesn't want to write anything anymore. However, on his way to the place where he would um, uh, f- finish his his days, uh, one monk kind of you know. Uh, Probably a mischievous monk probably all the other monks were told, you know, don't bother Thomas. He is an old man He is extremely weak now We have to do everything to save him and that monk that probably went to him and asked him a question and St Thomas accepted to answer this question and this is actually one of the most beautiful answer that or text that we have from St Thomas on predestination, you know, the the famous question uh, of does God actually know you know and decides that from all eternity he has decided already these will go to heaven, these will go to hell, this whole question of predestination. We have the most beautiful text from St. Thomas on this predestination and on human freedom, which of course is extremely uh, interconnected with the mystery of predestination, the understanding of um, the question. And he dies peacefully on March 7th, 1274. I see that time is running. We have Compline at 9 o'clock tonight. I hope you will all join us for this beautiful office of Compline as we celebrate today the Feast of the Visitation of Our Lady with uh, nine new priests for the Church, for the Institute today, ordained for um, the service of God and souls. I would just give you this conclusion, a couple quotes from... uh, Two Popes, Sixtus V and Pius IX on St. Thomas, and then a little explanation. Sixtus V. By the divine favor of him, who alone gives the spirit of science wisdom and understanding, and who thou ages, as there may be need, enriches his church with new blessings and strengthens it with safeguards, there was founded by our fathers, men of eminent wisdom, The Scholastic Theology, which two glorious doctors in particular, Angelic St. Thomas and the Seraphic St. Bonaventure, illustrious teachers of this faculty, with surpassing genius by unwearied diligence and at the cost of long labors and vigils, set in order and beautified and when skillfully arranged and clearly explained in a variety of ways, handed down to prosperity. And studiohum dec ducem, Pius IX. Such a combination of doctrine and piety, of erudition and virtue, of truth and charity, is to be found in an eminent degree in the angelic doctor, And it is not without reason that he has been given the sun for a device. He's always represented with the sun, either here or on his forehead. For he both brings the light of learning into the minds of men and fires their hearts and wills with the virtues. God, the source of all sanctity and wisdom, would therefore seem to have desired to show in the case of Thomas how each of these qualities assist the other, how the practice of the virtues disposes to the contemplation of truth and the profound consideration of truth in turn gives luster and perfection to the virtues. For the man of pure and upright life, whose passions are controlled by virtue, is delivered, as it were, of a heavy burden and can much more easily raise his mind to heavenly things and penetrate more profoundly into the secrets of God, according to the maxims of Thomas himself. Life comes before learning, for life leads to the knowledge of truth. And if such a man devouts himself to the investigation of the supernatural, he will find a powerful incentive in such a pursuit to lead a perfect life for the learning of such sublime things the beauty of which is a ravishing ecstasy so far from being a solitary or a sterile occupation must be said to be on the contrary most practical so again if we are to avoid the errors which are the source and fountain head of all the miseries of our time the teaching of aquinas must be adhered to more religiously than ever for thomas refutes the theories propounded by modernists in every sphere, in philosophy, by protecting as the force and power of the human mind, and by demonstrating the existence of God by the most cogent arguments, in dogmatic theology, by distinguishing the supernatural from the natural order and explaining the reasons for belief and the dogmas themselves, in theology, by showing that the articles of faith are not based upon mere opinion, but upon truth, and therefore cannot possibly change. In this by transmitting the true conception of divine inspiration in the science of morals, in sociology and law, by laying down sound principles of legal and social, commutative and distributive justice, and explaining the relations between justice and charity, in the theory of asceticism, by his precepts concerning the perfect, the perfection of the Christian life, and in confutation of the enemies of the religious order, in his own day, lastly, he is mentioning here the Albigensian uh, heresy, religious people, enemies of the religious order of that time in southern France that he had to fight against. This is also the reason why they had the, the office of Corpus Christi, as you know, to reaffirm the real present. Lastly, against the much-vounted liberty of the human reason and its independence in regard to God, he asserts the rights of primary truth and the authority over us of the Supreme Master. It is therefore clear why modernists are so amply just, justified in fearing no doctor of the Church so much as Thomas Aquinas. Thank you for your attention, and may God bless you. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us.